0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 989. For the first half of today's show, David Lorila welcomes Tim Haggerty, broadcaster for the AAA El Paso Chihuahuas and author of the upcoming book, Tales from the Dugout, a thousand and one humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball. David begins by asking Tim about some Padres prospects playing in El Paso, including Jay Groom, Ryan Weathers, and Luis Camposano before asking him about some of the best players he has seen over his long minor league broadcasting career. Tim then shares some of his favorite stories from the book, including a PA announcer getting ejected from a game, a minor league team spending a night in jail, and a team setting their field on fire on purpose. We also hear about a snake delay, and that one time a pitcher had to exit a game because he could
1: not exit the bathroom. So out of the 1,000 one stories, only about a dozen are from games that I covered. This one was one of them, though. 2007. Mobile at Montgomery in Alabama, and there was a Mobile reliever, Matt Elliott, who allowed the game-tying home run in the bottom of the eighth inning. And he was so upset, he went into the dugout bathroom and slammed the door. And he slammed it so hard that it jammed the lock. And he trapped himself in the bathroom, and he can't get out. Well, he's still scheduled to be the pitcher in the bottom of the ninth inning. Mobile takes the field, but there's no pitcher. And I'm trying to describe this complete confusion because I see the manager, Brett Butler, and he literally has his cap off and he's scratching his head. He doesn't know what to do. And he's looking at his lineup card and I'm thinking, there's no new pitcher warming up. What is going on here? And I get this note that <laughs> that um, Matt Elliott is locked in the bathroom. And I thought, can I air this? Like, is this not a prank? And I looked in the booth next to me and it's actually a friend of yours, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, who now uh, calls Lansing games. He was one of the Montgomery announcers and he nods his head. He says, yes, it's true. So Mobile had to bring in a new pitcher and Matt Elliott was trapped in that bathroom 40 minutes after the game ended. The Montgomery Fire Department had to come let him out. And the poor guy, this got national attention. This was in the New York Times. This was in Sports Illustrated.
0: After that, Ben Clemens is joined by Jay Jaffe to discuss those darn Yankees, who are incredible in the first half but are in an undeniable skid since the trade deadline. We hear about Jay attending Tuesday night's contests and how fans of the team are unhappy despite the club clearly preparing for October. The pair also talk about the perplexing Jordan Montgomery Harrison Bader trade, the struggles of Frankie Montas, how hard it is to catch a home run on video in person, and how Aaron Judge has continued to be truly outstanding.
2: The Yankees' offense has been really bad, and all the players you can think of have been really bad, except Aaron Judge, has still been the best player in baseball.
3: <laughs> yeah, it Judge's hit for like a 250 WRC yeah. plus uh, in you know in the second half, and you know the Yankees' offense is still you know, barely league average in that time. It's remarkable how much
2: <laughs> how much better he has been than the rest of the Yankees. Yeah. You often think of a team going in a slump and kind of nobody can get it working. It, it's not that. He's, he's still doing it just as good as ever. And his home run last night, I mean, I had to watch it a few times. It was 116 miles an hour off the bat, and it, it didn't look like he generated that much power. He's just it's just so easy. It's so fun to watch.
3: Yeah, the six, seven, and those long levers, it's just remarkable.
0: But before we get to these great segments, this is when I would usually issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. But instead, we have a special feature this week. I am joined by Fangraphs' own Sean Dolinar, Director of Engineering, does all the front end development here at Fangraphs, and he uh, just made the Fangraphs app that you may have seen the post about and are really excited about. Sean, thanks for joining me here.
4: Oh, no problem. Great to be
0: here. Yeah, and congratulations on the release of this app. I know you've been working on it for a while.
4: Thanks. Yeah, we've been working on it since February. So it's it's been almost six months
0: so sean you're in charge of a lot of why fan is working and we're seeing it and every time i know as someone working there anytime it breaks we say sean please fix it uh, and keep it running but this app is your your new baby you've been working on and it got released this week and just really excited about it it's on the apple store and on google play you can go get it right now and it's the best way to browse fan graphs on your phone basically
4: yeah, we wanted to create a a really good native mobile experience for FanGraphs. There's a lot of use cases that are not heavy research and you're on your phone and you want to look up a player playoff odds. So we wanted to really enable that as best as we could and that That is with a native app and we have player pages in there. We have the scores with the win probability. We have the win probability graphs and then playoff odds. So that's just what we have right now. We definitely want to expand it to include editorial and leaderboards. We got a lot of good feedback over the week about that. I mean, we always were expecting to add more. This is just basically the first version of it. And we plan to add more.
0: Yeah, I've seen already a bunch of people excited about it and people excited about editorial and whatnot being added. And yeah, it just seems great if you're at the bar or if you're at the ballpark, and and maybe you missed a play, or maybe you want to know more about a player, or you want to see how much that double play changed the win probability of the game, or whatnot. And it's just it runs really clean compared to a lot of web browsing and trying to get around and get to the thing you need and and knowing where it all is in the FanGraphs app has been has been really nice. It's, I've been using it a little bit before it came out. <laughs> Lucky me getting to test it. But
4: yeah, you'll you'll get some more betas here soon of uh, editorial. <laughs>
0: That's great. Yeah, it's really cool. If you haven't checked it out, definitely head over again, Apple Store, Google Play. And uh, it has some membership features, right?
4: Yeah. So just like our site, it's free to download and you can use it. All the information is there, but it has ads just like our site. And if you want to remove those ads, it's the same membership. You can either get the membership through our site, which probably a lot of you already have. Mm -hmm. You can also do an in-app purchase on Google or Apple if you prefer to get it that way. Yeah, very cool. Well,
0: Sean, thanks for taking the time to join me today. And again, thanks for all of your work always, not only on this app, but on uh, Fangraphs. If you're, if you're out there reading Fangraphs, it's because uh, Sean helped us keep it running and, and making things work on the front end. So we appreciate
4: all your work very much. Thank you. And I want to thank all the readers and users for all the great feedback and appreciation over this past week. I think um, anytime that you're able to help us make Fangraphs better, we, we definitely want to do that to help you get more out of baseball. Yes, absolutely. Thank
0: you to you readers and listeners, and enjoy the show.
5: Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Tim Haggerty, radio voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas, the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres. Tim, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio.
1: Yeah, good to talk to you again.
5: Yeah, it's been a while, Tim. Great to have you on. Along with being a broadcaster, uh, you have done a lot of writing, including for Sabre and the Hardball Times. You also have a book coming out in the spring, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's a book of 1,001 crazy minor league stories from the present day and all the way back to 1877.
5: And the title of the book is?
1: Yeah, the title is Tales from the Dugout, 1,001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. And it's available for pre-order now, and it will be in stores in March.
5: And we will certainly hear some of those stories, Tim. But first, I think we should talk a little bit about some of the players on the El Paso roster. Let's start with Jay Groom, whom the Padres acquired in the Eric Hosmer trade. What are your early impressions of uh, Jay?
1: Yeah, I think quietly. This was a really nice pickup for the Padres. He just fits the part. Big 6'6", left-handed pitcher. And he's done well in some hitter-friendly conditions in the Pacific Coast League so far. Three starts, ERA of 2.87, and he's really dived right in. It was interesting talking to him, as you know, David, covering prospects. Sometimes these guys age so slowly. I mean, he got drafted in 2016, and as we tape this, yesterday was his 24th birthday. He's still (laughs) fairly young, but he's been around a little bit. And he was telling me that back when he was in high school... The Padres were one of the teams that was scouting him pretty heavily. He he felt like maybe they would draft him. As it turns out, he went to Boston. And he felt that even though he was traded, it didn't feel totally shocking because the Padres were always sort of a team in the back of his mind that he thought had some interest in him. And, you know, obviously Eric Cosmer was the big name in that deal. But the other day we were in Round Rock And there was a scout in the press box with a major league team, and he nodded his head talking about Groom and said, that's a major league starter. And as you know, scouts don't just throw around compliments like that. Typically, they're a pretty critical bunch. So I thought that was pretty telling.
5: No, that is telling. And age is, of course, important. At 24, he's still young. Somebody who is even younger is Ryan Weathers, who spent almost all of last year in San Diego as a 21-year-old. This year, he's back in Triple A. How has Weathers looked?
1: It has been an inconsistent year for him. Uh, he was the first one to tell you that. And the Padres have been working on some things with him. He's walking more players than last year. It's been such an interesting career for Weathers. If you look at his, his Fangraphs page or his baseball reference page, you know, he's, a, he's the first round pick in 2018, seventh overall pick, pretty quickly goes from rookie ball to low A. And then 2020 happens. There's no official minor league season. He's at the alternate training site and thrives so well there that the Padres put him on their playoff roster. He's one of just a handful of players to make their Major League debut in the Major League playoffs. 2021, as you mentioned, he spent almost all of the season in the Majors. He was with El Paso only two games. But now this year, you know, I suspect he went to spring training thinking he'd be on the opening day roster. That didn't happen. And he's only been up for one game this year. He started a game in a fill in role at Wrigley Field mid-summer for the Padres. And it's just such an interesting up and down for a guy that's still so young. You know, a high school pick in 2018, he's already pitched in the Major League Playoffs, has been demoted, has spent pretty much a whole season in the majors. He really has lived the life so far.
5: And you have been calling games in the minors, Tim, for close to two decades now somehow. Who is the best <laughs> pitcher or maybe the most impressive pitcher on a team that you call games for?
1: Yeah, my first year was 2004. You're right. I never really thought about that It's almost two decades. Maybe I didn't want to yet until you told me that, David. Um <laughs> But uh, the best pitcher, you know, the first one that came to mind was somebody I saw as a visitor. I remember my second season, 2005, I was with Double A Mobile, and the Birmingham closer was Bobby Jenks. And that season was the closer to finish off the World Series for the White Sox. And this guy, just size, velocity, everything was so overpowering. It was so obvious that he was bound to be beyond AA in no time. And he was pitching the World Series that year. Uh, as far as teams I've called over the years, you know who is quietly, a very good prospect a decade ago. Padres fans will remember his name, but Corey Luebke was really too bad what happened with him and injuries. Luebke was one of the best minor league pitchers I had seen. Left-handed pitcher, terrific control, got to AAA fast, got to the majors fast. You know, and he's an example of when major league teams offer prospects or young major leaguers the, quote, team-friendly deals. I think his offer was four years, $12 million, and he signed it. And Some people at the time criticized that. Some agent-type people said, well, if this guy develops into one of the best starters in baseball, he will make four times that in a free agent deal. Well, he had a couple of arm surgeries, and right now he's at home in Ohio out of baseball. But guess what? He has $12 million. To me, I always think about him as somebody that when teams offer you that team-friendly deal, I mean, to me, it's really hard to say no to that and that I would never fault a player for signing it. So he comes to mind as one. Uh, Eric Lauer in El Paso was really good. You know who had a great AAA season in 2017, the same year he went up to the majors, was Denelson LeMet. And then, of course, with the Padres, he became a a solid starter. He had a really good 2020 season. He was in the mix getting some Cy Young votes that year, but uh, after some injuries, really hasn't totally rebounded, and now is with the Rockies, so I wish him well there.
5: You mentioned $12 million, Tim. That's more or less than you have made in your 18 years of broadcasting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not quite making Corey Luebke money, no. (laughs)
5: <laughs> no no that's not the way minor league broadcasting works unfortunately what about the best player that you have called games for position player you know who was
1: awesome at a young age in triple a was anthony rizzo check out his 2011 numbers with triple a tucson the year before he was traded to the cubs it was crazy both the traditional stats he had more than 100 rbis and just about 100 games played And the the rate stats were incredible as well. The OPS, the slugging. He was just soaring these high, deep home runs in Tucson to that high elevation. And the amazing thing was at that time, him being a high school pick, I mean, there were times he was the youngest player on the field, but the best hitter too. So he's won. Ty France won MVP with El Paso in 2019. He had an awesome season that year. Hunter Renfro was another one, just so gifted in, in all of his tools offensively. I think like the three... Most amazing throws I've ever seen. Hunter Renfro had two of them. The guy's arm is incredible. One day in El Paso, he was playing left field. And without much of a crow hop, threw the ball from the left field warning track on a fly to the catcher. And the catcher didn't have to move. He just simply held, held his mitt right there at his chest. That's definitely the best arm I've seen.
5: No, and seeing uh, Renfro a lot in the big leagues, particularly in Boston last year, he loves to show off his arm as well. Right. Any throw opportunity he has, he will take advantage of. Yeah, Tim, let's jump back to this year's El Paso team. Luis Campusano, I believe, is currently the top prospect in the Padres organization. Is bat first catcher a good description?
1: Yes, I think that even the Padres would say that. Uh, he's having another outstanding hitting season, but his defense has really improved. He has a great arm behind the plate, and it's pretty frequent in the afternoons you see him working in the bullpen or on the field on his catching, blocking balls. I know the El Paso coaching staff has told me they're working with him, his pitch calling, and that he's improving when it comes to certain pitch selections and getting to know pitchers. You know, and he also does something, if you really watch him closely, he will, on the mound, at the meeting at the mound, will really give the pitcher an aggressive pat on the back. I know this type of thing is anecdotal and, you know, it's an observation that some people might not think is much. But the thing I mentioned that about Luis is that so many people look at him as a hitting first catcher. But I do think when he's back there, he's very invested in the team. There was a subtle thing. El Paso had a recent home game. It was the middle of a game. Sugarland, the Astros Triple Eight team had bases loaded, two outs in it. This wasn't a dramatic ninth inning situation. This was in the fourth or the fifth inning. And a fly ball out ended the inning. And I observed Camposano just give a pump of the fist down by his side. And I love that. Here's a guy that's been up and down the past three years, major leagues and minor leagues, he might see that there's some Padres catchers that aren't hitting great. And I think maybe a A player might wallow in that and wonder why I haven't been called up. But when he pumps his fist like that, to me, that's somebody who's really committed to the AAA game that he's playing in and the AAA team that he's part of.
5: On the subject of call-ups, I would like to ask you, Tim, about one more El Paso player before we jump to some fun stories. What does an outfielder with a 315 batting average and close to a 400 OBP at the AAA level, and this is over, (laughs) I think, 200-plus games at at the AAA level, have to do to earn that opportunity?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I I suspect exactly who you're talking about. I know you talked to him on the phone last year. I remember when he was in El Paso, uh, Taylor Colway. It's funny. His name is coming up so much in El Paso with scouts on Fangraphs Audio. Taylor Colway was never a big prospect and really still isn't on the prospect list because he's not going to hit 500-foot home runs. He's not going to steal 30 bases, but he very quietly has long at bats. He is hard to get out. I mean, this guy went to a small college in Wisconsin. He's from Wisconsin, a cold weather place. He told me he was surprised the day he got drafted that he did not see that coming. His phone rang. He wasn't like a top player in the SEC or the ACC that was tracking the live draft. He was a little bit surprised that he was even drafted. And here he is in AAA with a 405 on base percentage. For a lot of this year, he had the highest on base percentage in all of AAA. That's dipped down a little bit since. But I really think that somewhere with some team He will reach the major leagues. I don't know if that's with San Diego. I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes the type of player that signs a six year free agent deal with a non contending major league team. You know, maybe next year he's playing in Louisville in May and the Reds give him a call up based on an injury, something like that. Not to say he couldn't with the Padres. We saw a really nice story and a pleasant surprise with a call up this year with Matthew Batten, who also was from a cold weather state, Connecticut. Was drafted in like the, the 32nd round, I think it was. It's something that starts with a three, how high of a round he was drafted in. And he played his way to the majors as well. So I think the Padres have done well with that over the years, where they really notice players who play their way into an opportunity. I remember in 2018, Fran Reyes could have been picked by any team in the Rule 5 draft, and he wasn't. He was not on the Padres 40 man roster. And in spring training that year, he was not on the radar to be a a call-up to San Diego, but he hit so well that by May, he was in the big leagues with San Diego and has been in the majors pretty much ever since. So I think the Padres do well with that, and most major league teams do as well, where even if you're not in their plans, you can make them make a decision, play your way into giving yourself an opportunity.
5: I think that Fran Meal and Taylor Colway are are pretty much opposites as as players. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, Reyes with the monster power and uh, you know plate discipline and uh, a ton of singles for Colway. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump, Tim. Uh, finally, to some of the minor league stories. I have not yet seen your book yet. I uh, you know, it's not yet out. So I asked you yesterday for a few possible stories we could touch on. One that you brought up was announcers being ejected from the <laughs> from the ballpark. I hope that you were the example that you wrote about. <laughs>
1: No, I have never been tossed, no. Not yet. Yeah, so this was a PA announcer. In 2021, the Hudson Valley Renegades gave away a bobblehead for their PA announcer, this guy Rick Zolzer, who's quite a character. He once did PA announcing via Skype from his pool, and they connected it live to the stadium. But the time he got ejected was he would be willing to comment on umpires on the public address announcer, Mike. And at one point, he went on a rant about the umpires and called them clowns. And the umpire turned around, pointed at him, and threw him out of the game. So, yeah, in the book I have various bizarre ejections. You'll like this one. There was a brownie troop mom that got so upset at a call at a short-season New Jersey Cardinals game in 2002 that she ran on the field and started yelling at the umpire. Uh, She not only got tossed, but got arrested also. So beware of the brownie troop moms.
5: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned getting in in trouble more than an ejection. I believe that a minor league team once spent a night in jail.
1: Yes, I love this one. So this was in uh, 1956. I'm just double checking my note on the year on that one. Yeah, 1956. So Abilene, Texas, is visiting Corpus Christi and every hotel room in town is sold out. They cannot find a place to stay. So the manager makes some calls and they ended up spending a couple of nights in the county jail as a way to actually get some shelter and get some beds. So the players were sleeping head to toe in jail cells on a team road trip.
5: That is insane, Tim. (laughs) I believe, too, that a fall ball once activated a fire alarm at a ballpark.
1: Yeah, this is also a recent story. 2021, a Jupiter Hammerheads player in the Florida State League hit a foul ball, it went flying into the stands, and it went into a tunnel between two sections of seating and the concourse, and it broke the fire alarm. So this foul ball activates all the fire alarms around the stadium, and they had to delay the game as they figured out the fire alarm situation.
5: But yet there was not a fire. The ballpark was not actually on fire, fortunately. Luckily, no. No fire. Yeah, I'm not aware of any ballparks uh, actually catching on fire, but I assume it's happened somewhere.
1: Yeah, this one's not in the book um, because it was saddening, but actually in your home state in 2014, there was an off-season fire at the West Michigan Whitecaps ballpark that did some damage. And uh, luckily that created such a fundraiser, such goodwill that things are back and that continues to be such a great organization. But you're right, luckily uh, no actual fire in that Jupiter Hammerheads game, although a team once purposely set their field on fire. If you want me to give you the rundown on that one. Oh,
5: absolutely. Yeah,
1: in 1982, Bakersfield was hosting Visalia and a California League doubleheader. They're late into the night, and the sprinklers come on. And the grounds crew cannot figure out the timer. These sprinklers are just soaking the field. So the manager had heard of this plan. They lit the field on fire as a way to dry the puddles... And it actually worked. They finished the doubleheader that night, but their grass was just burnt yellow the rest of the year.
5: That is crazy. The West Michigan ballpark, of course, catching on fire did happen in the offseason. I should note that was not fortunate yes, in, in the middle Exactly. Of the game. Yeah. yeah. Let's jump to something else that is just popping into my head. Josh Wetzel, who calls games for the Rochester Red Wings, told me about doing a game that I believe went something like 17 or 18 or 19 innings and toward the end of that game he desperately needed a restroom. He had been calling the game solo and he learned that he had to run all the way down to the concourse and he barely made it back to the booth. <laughs> I-, I don't know if you have any similar stories.
1: Josh is a great announcer and a good friend. You know the one that comes to mind uh 2004 my first season in Idaho Falls. The person back in the studio that plays the commercials, the producer, the board operator, it was a high school kid being paid, I don't know, $8 an hour. Idaho Falls Radio, you know, you're getting part-time employees to fill roles like that. And this kid was thirsty and wanted a snack. So right at the start of an inning, he decides to run across the street to the gas station. And I I remember what he told me. He got a soda and a honey bun. Well, it was Saturday. He didn't have a key to the station. And he didn't jar the door open. He locked himself out of the building. So at the end of the inning, I say, and it's Idaho Falls 2, Casper 2 at the end of four innings. We'll be back after this no commercials, nothing in my ear. Okay. After another half inning, I tossed it to a commercial break, nothing. And I'm like, is this guy okay? Did he like pass out in the studio? This is really before people were texting all the time. So I'm calling the radio station between innings and I, literally no one is in the building with this live broadcast. So uh, eventually somebody came down and helped him in. But for a couple of innings, I was just talking between commercial breaks while this guy got a soda.
5: That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, Josh Wetzel having to find a restroom. I believe that I have heard of players in the past actually getting locked into restrooms in the middle of a game. <laughs> Is that anything that made its way into your book?
1: Yes. So out of the 1000 stories, only about a dozen are from games that I covered. This one was one of them, though. 2007, Mobile at Montgomery in Alabama, and there was a Mobile reliever, Matt Elliott, who allowed the game-tying home run in the bottom of the eighth inning. And he was so upset, he went into the dugout bathroom and slammed the door. And he slammed it so hard that it jammed the lock. And he trapped himself in the bathroom. And he can't get out. Well, he's still scheduled to be the pitcher in the bottom of the ninth inning. Mobile takes the field, but there's no pitcher. And I'm trying to describe this complete confusion because I see the manager, Brett Butler, and he literally has his cap off and he's scratching his head. He doesn't know what to do and he's looking at his lineup card. And I'm thinking... There's no new pitcher warming up. What is going on here? And I get this note that, <laughs> that um, Matt Elliott is locked in the bathroom. And I thought, can I air this? Like, is this not a prank? And I looked in the booth next to me, and it's actually a friend of yours, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, who now uh, calls Lansing games. He was one of the Montgomery announcers, and he nods his head. He says, yes, it's true. So Mobile had to bring in a new pitcher, and Matt Elliott was trapped in that bathroom 40 minutes after the game ended. The Montgomery Fire Department had to come let him out. And the poor guy, this got national attention. This was in the New York Times. This was in Sports Illustrated. There was all sorts of puns. Pitcher locked in, gets locked in bathroom also. Yeah, so he had to leave the game because he was locked
5: in the bathroom. Wow. What is the craziest thing, Tim, that has happened to you in your broadcasting career at a ballpark?
1: Yeah, the the bathroom delay (laughs) was certainly up there. I remember the first ever game I called. It was in Provo, Utah. And they had this local banker throwing out the ceremonial first pitch. And this poor guy, like, goes down after the first pitch. He somehow twisted his knee so severely that he couldn't walk. He had the serious leg injury, and for 20 minutes he's on the field as they get a stretcher and they pull him off. And it's my first season. I'm still figuring out what I'm doing. It's the very beginning of the season, so there's no real standings or stats. So I'm filling time with no play-by-play happening on the field. So that was when I learned that sometimes you're going to have to fill some time during some crazy delays. There was uh, the bathroom delay that we talked about there. There was also that year in Idaho Falls, my first year, 2004, in Casper, Wyoming, there was a snake delay. In fact, in my book, Billy Butler, the former Major League All-Star, contributed the forward. And this is what Billy writes about in his forward, because he was the third baseman for this play. I'm up there, and I I can't figure out why the game has paused. But Billy Butler, the third baseman, has his hands in the air. The two umpires, two umpires in that league. They go over, and they're looking near third base, and there's this huge Wyoming snake on the infield grass. And the general manager of the team for the then-Casper Rockies runs down on the field with a pillowcase, somehow gets this snake to slither in there, takes the snake off the field, and the game continues. Uh, And that's the life of a minor league general manager. It's quite different than a major league general manager. You know, major league GMs are making player moves and making trades and doing TV interviews. Minor league GMs sometimes have to go grab a snake with a pillowcase.
5: I don't think we're going to beat that one, Tim. But rather than close (laughs) here, bringing up trades, have you had any interesting trade stories?
1: Yeah, I loved digging into these for the book. There have been some funny ones over the years. In 1921, Dallas traded a pitcher, Joe Martina, to New Orleans for two barrels of oysters, and there are some other food ones like that. Wichita Falls, in what was then a Class A Texas League, they traded pitcher Yule Moore for a plate of beans. In 1930, San Antonio traded. Len Dondero to Dallas, and that deal was for a dozen donuts. couple more quick ones. 1931, Chattanooga had this eccentric headline-grabbing owner, Joe Engel, and Engel traded a shortstop to Charlotte for a turkey, and he cooked the turkey for a winter banquet, and on stage said the turkey was having a better year. Ooh. I know. Cold. One more. Uh, in 1997, San Diego traded a minor league catcher, Sean Mulligan, to Cleveland for a used treadmill. The late Kevin Tower is just a great person said that apparently San Diego's training facility needed another treadmill. So rather than trading them for cash considerations, they said, can you ship us a treadmill? And Cleveland did.
5: The Padres gave up a little bit more than a treadmill for Juan Soto a few, <laughs> a few weeks ago.
1: Yes, they did.
5: Yes, they did much more. Tim, I think we are out of time. So I will thank you once again for coming on to Fangrass Audio.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoy your Sunday articles and it's great to talk to you.
5: Thanks. And uh, we will put a link to Tim's upcoming book on the site. So everybody look forward to that next spring. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Jay Jaffe, fresh off of a grueling Yankees game that he went to last night. How's it going, Jay?
3: Uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little tired to say the least. I'm not sure I would call it grueling. It was a very exciting game, but getting home uh, as late as I did from the Bronx, it's a 30 minute drive on even even at, at late night, and so um, I'm, I'm feeling it. But yeah, uh, exciting Subway Series, packed house, yeah. the largest Yankee Stadium crowd of the season for two, you know, very good teams here in the in the grand scheme, although their respective arcs have been have been quite different. But you know the outcome was in doubt until the final pitch, and I think you know when you're looking when you're looking for a great game, having a packed house between you know intra-city rivals with the outcome in doubt till the final pitch, that pretty much touches all the bases.
2: Yeah, I mean, anytime you can have like Wandy Peralta replace Clark Schmidt and actually have everything on the line and feel like the other team could win, it's going to be pretty exciting. It never yeah. felt like a like a fait accompli. It was just you know alive till the last pitch. <laughs> I feel like all Yankees games that I've been to in my life are grueling, just because getting there and getting back is the it's, grueling part.
3: You know, you're not you're not wrong in a certain sense. I mean, I, I I've lived in New York City for 27 and a half years now, and going to Yankee Stadium, you know, by far more than any other ballpark, and it's a schlep for me from Brooklyn here. You know, no matter oh, yeah. what ti- what time of day. And it reminds me of just the barriers to entry to get into New York city in general. You know, you're, you just, you go through these bottlenecks of high traffic and it's just like, it's never painless. <laughs> yeah.
2: That, that's that been my, ex- I, when I lived there, I lived, you know, very downtown Manhattan and it was, it felt similar, even though there were fewer bridges and tunnels to navigate. Right. Right. Well, I was very, uh, I was very interested by the changing tone of your two Yankees pieces. And I feel like it kind of reflects the mood around the Yankees as a whole. So this has been a tale of two, I guess, halves, not seasons, for the Yankees. And do you think it'll be a tale of three seasons? Do you think that this, uh, this recent, if I hesitate to call it a winning streak. It's been, I think, three games, but three games. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does feel totally different than the mood there for the last month
3: it really it really does change the flavor of things so you know as as I wrote now this this is for referring back to Tuesday's piece here we're talking here it's Wednesday you know as of June 20th I wrote about the Yankees when they were off to a 49 and 17 start that's a 742 winning percentage 118 win pace they were still as good as t- 61 and 23 726 pace as late as July 8th and, you know, just looked like a, a team that was at the very least going to be mentioned in the same breath as their 1998 squad, you know, which is yeah, a
2: comfortably hundred win kind of team.
3: Yeah. I mean like, you know, pushing, pushing above even like 108 wins, you know, and, and, and challenging the single season record, even that late into the season. But since then they lost 25 out of 37 games before <laughs> winning on Sunday against the Blue Jays and then on Monday against the Mets. And that right there was their first two-game winning streak in August. That's Uh, remarkable. Which is just remarkable. And Tuesday night's win gave them – their first series win since they ended July by winning the first three games of their series against the Royals. So, uh, it is, it has been a drought and it's shown, you know, it's not just any kind of losing streak either or, or skid either. It's one that really, I think, highlights the insecurities, you know, that, that, that the Yankees, you know, might feel about the, the condition of their ball club come October. Because, I mean, they're, you know, they've, they have the division reasonably in hand here, yeah. You know, with the, with a big lead, and you know, so a lot of this is about fine tuning the team for October. I mean, they had, you know, they were as ahead by as as much as fifteen and a half games, and at that point, you're really just you know tweaking things for October. But you know, now they're down to eight games, and in fact, you know, the, the Rays have surpassed the Blue Jays for second place in in the in the AL uh, East. But the parts that they got at the deadline to address some of their shortcomings really hadn't seemed to fit in that first three weeks after the trade. And it's really this three-game winning streak where suddenly it's kind of coming together with Andrew Benintendi, you know, finally settling in and yeah. becoming a pest at the top of the lineup. He hadn't homered since like, I don't know, 50 games or something like that yeah, until was, he hit, hit that big you, home run. Or something. Yeah, off of Adam Simber to to win Sunday's game and prevent the sweep against the Blue Jays. You know, Mo- Frankie Montas hadn't pitched very well in his three starts since coming over in a sequence of trades that I think both you and I have really kind of dug in on and yeah. you know, made, made some hay with it uh, at, at, at Fangraphs here. You know, what happened – was you know the Yankees wanted Luis Castillo, but they were outbid. He went to the Mariners uh, in a four prospect
2: yeah. package. A, a prospect, a prospect package that the Yankees I don't think were interested in matching. It, yeah, it sounds I don't think like from right everything right. we've read since then. And that really was short of the Soto deal, the biggest trade of the deadline, the Castillo trade, the Mariners. Relative to what other pitchers went for at the deadline, went above and beyond to make sure they got the best pitcher. Yeah,
3: I would agree. And then the Yankees, what, two days later, they sent four prospects, lower ceiling, but more major league ready uh, yeah. to Oakland for these
2: kinds of prospects, I'd really say. <laughs>
3: Yeah, for for uh, for Montas and for Lou Trevino, who actually has has turned out to be a strong addition, despite his struggles uh, in in Oakland beforehand. I really didn't didn't uh, explore the the uh, the impact he's had so far uh, in, in in my piece, but he's worth mentioning. But the what was strange to me was that. You know, the Yankees, right after acquiring Montas, they traded Jordan Montgomery to the Cardinals at the deadline, their two-pitcher Monty, uh, if, if if you will. <laughs> and uh, to me, I thought that was really a little bit puzzling because Louis, you know, they just put Luis Severino on the 60-day injured list. Yeah,
2: kind of out of nowhere, too.
3: Yeah, and it I mean, surprised him. He was actually publicly pissed off about it. and. They have to deal with uh Nestor Cortez's uh innings load. He's pitched you know, he's been their best starter, but uh, you know, he's not gonna be a two hundred inning guy for them. No so,
2: they really don't want him to be at the very least.
3: Right. And they and they lost, you know, they they lost Michael King, their multi-inning reliever, to a fractured elbow in, in mid-July. And the Severino and King injuries, I think, sort of seem to precipitate everything that's come after. You know, in terms of of the cracks in the foundation of of, of this of what would look like an elite te- suddenly look yeah. like an elite team. So I was surprised by the Montgomery trade, and the Yankees did it to get a center fielder who has yet to play for them in Harrison Bader. And I don't know. I, and of course Montgomery has has been brilliant as you as you wrote about earlier this week.
2: Yeah. So the Jordan-Montgomery trade was really interesting from both sides. And I know a lot of Yankees fans from living in New York a long time. I am a Cardinals fan and know a lot of them as well. And it's the rare trade where I think both sides (laughs) thought that their team did the wrong thing. It it was a really interesting one.
3: Yeah. You used the word hubris in your coverage of of Montgomery's uh, four-start run in St. Louis and it didn't occur to me till after i read that but i think i would say would have used the same word had it been on my finger, you know at, at, you know at my ready uh, to describe what the yankees did but you know because as i just said you know their their rotation is looking a little thin they needed a center fielder but they didn't get one that's that's going to play until right. until sometime in september there's a real gamble and there's you know there's longer term you know club control regarding both of these trades so it's yeah. not just about you know the next two or three months
2: Yeah, but when you said building for October, I mean, you weren't kidding.
3: Yeah. (laughs) They just, they
2: skipped August and most of September.
3: (laughs) Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, tell me more about about what you see from the Cardinals side of this.
2: Yeah, so Harrison Bader had been kind of a key part of a lot of Cardinals defenses. He's an average hitter, I'd say. I I think that's a fair representation of him. But he is... If not the best outfield defender in baseball, then the second best behind Byron Buxton, I would estimate. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the advanced metrics would concur with that. But so would just watching him, he's really fast and has just perfect jumps. So I found it a bit of yeah hubris to trade from someone who you want to be part of your major league outfield, even if it's only for half a month this year or the better part of a month, depends exactly on when he comes back, when you're in such a tight playoff race. Now, maybe you couldn't get the exact same pitcher as Montgomery, but the Cardinals could have traded for Tyler Maley or any of the other starters available at the deadline by trading prospects, and it just seems like like just too cute by half to trade away from your major league team to improve your major league team when the whole point is to improve your major league team. Just just trade prospects like that. Right. That seems like the thing to do. And I, the same is true for the Yankees, though they did the exact same thing. They traded away from their major league team to improve their major league team, and it is it has been amusing that the very thing they traded away from has been one of their problems. Since the deadline,
3: yes, yes, most definitely. I mean, their rotation has not been like wretched, but if you look, even you know, going back to the the start of the second half, it was definitely you know a couple a couple of notches below. You know, with an ERA in the high fours, their peripherals weren't weren't as bad, but the defensive support hasn't been as good you know Garrett Cole had not pitched very well Cortez had had, had continued to pitch well but uh, uh everybody else had pretty much taken a step back and so yeah to to trade Montgomery who has been i think extremely reliable over the last couple of years uh, at times, just the, the rock of the rotation. You know, not a guy who necessarily was going to wind up on an all-star team, but just, a, you know, a, a reliable fourth starter. And, you know, the, the way that Yankees fans rationalized this was, oh, he's not going to start a playoff. He wouldn't be starting a playoff game for us. Well, I mean, you're not guaranteed that things are going to right for Severino in his rehab. Yeah. You know, we've seen. You know, this is a guy who's, who threw twenty four innings from two thousand nineteen to two thousand twenty one, and you know couldn't start in the postseason for you know last year. And you know, so you're you're counting unhatched chickens here. You know, in that regard, and look, you know, the Yankees are built to withstand four inning starts. You know, twice through the order starts in October. That's all. You know, that's what Brian Cashman yeah. has done. I, I I go back to the, the two thousand seventeen wild card game. When, who is it? They they were against the A's. And I think it was, was it Severino they had to pull? Let me check this. Heck
2: yeah, out. I think it was. They pulled him like the first inning, right?
3: Yes. So the Yankees are, are built to withstand this... I think back to the 2017 wildcard game, which I covered while I was at Sports Illustrated. They scored three runs against the Twins in the top of the first inning, but then Severino didn't make it out of the first inning in the bottom of the frame. And they, they used Chad Green, David Robertson, Tommy Canley, and Aroldis Chapman to get the rest of the way. And Robertson, though he was a, a Yankees product, had, had uh, just come over. He and Canley had come over in midseason from Uh, the White Sox in a a big trade. And those guys gave him five and two-thirds innings between the two of them. Yeah, You know, they're they're built to withstand these short starts. You know, Brian Cashman knows what the f*** he's doing when it comes to building an October bullpen in general.
2: Yeah. It's very impressive, honestly, that, I mean, you look at all the trades they made this deadline and they basically traded the guys who will be the future bullpen. Yeah. But they have just as many behind them and the current bullpen, despite a ton of injuries, still has a lot of arms.
3: Yeah, and I, you know, I think some of, some of this comes down to, you know, the work that, the the work that the analytics department and pitching coach Matt Blake are able to do to get these guys to focus on what they do best and to tweak their arsenals, you know, in, in, in order to maximize their success, you know, their their whirly sliders or whatever, what everybody else is calling a sweeper or, yeah. you know, getting, optimizing Trevino's pitch selection after a rough stretch in Oakland.
2: It is very impressive what they do. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, so the bullpen has been impressive. And one of the pitchers they've been picking up the slack for, as we've been talking about, was Frankie Montes, who was supposed to kind of be the opposite. And that's uh, that's somebody you wrote about just this week as well.
3: Yeah. I went to I went to Tuesday's start. Montas had been – really had kind of had a, a rocky eight weeks. He pitched brilliantly in the Bronx for the A's on June 28th and then left his next start after one inning with what was diagnosed as shoulder inflammation. Missed yeah. two turns, had a couple short, ugly outings, and then was traded. Missed time. Missed his first start due to going on the bereavement list. His mother-in-law passed away, I believe it was. And then had three starts of which only one was really acceptable and had two really big, like a five-run inning against the Cardinals and then a six-run inning against the Blue Jays. And just, you know, things got away from him. And, you know, had the – yeah, it taxed the Yankees' bullpen, which was already been taxed by, you know, some of the other starters uh, working short. and. It was it was ugly, and so you know we hadn't really seen a representative version of Montas.
2: Yeah, and it was fair to wonder if he was hurt, even.
3: Yeah, I, I did wonder about the shoulder. Although you know when I went, Aaron Boone said no, he's feeling good, and you know there was some there was some stuff about uh, you know his arsenal had how he had been throwing more fastballs since coming over, which is sometimes a sign of a pitcher who's not feeling great because right. the breaking yeah. stuff could be harder on on the elbows and things like that, and you wonder, yeah, if he's in full working order. But you know Boone said you know, he, that he thought that the pitch mix was different, you know, that he was throwing more fastballs, fewer splitters and sliders, you know, his his best pitches in terms of generating whiffs because he'd been pitching from behind and that it was kind of a small sample and that, you know, he would be, that would write itself. And that's exactly what happened on Tuesday night. You know, he, he, he established the fastball, he got ahead, uh, he got a lot of, he swings and misses with the heater and, and dialed it up as fast as he's been since late June. And it was a really impressive start. He was let down by the Yankees' defense. Uh, <laughs> kind of a amusing gaffe uh, yeah. in the uh, sixth inning that allowed the tying run to score when Glaber Torres went into brain lock, chasing Jeff McNeil back to second base while Pete Alonso snuck home uh, yeah, that was not after, great. after stumbling while rounding third base. But, you know, the Yankees picked him up, which they haven't been doing much lately. And um, Aaron Judge was part of that. And Aaron Judge is just, you know, he's the MVP this year. I, I love Shohei yeah. Otani. I think Shohei Otani is remarkable. But, man, having, watching Aaron Judge almost every day when I can, it's just he's always there. He's always coming through, it seems. and
2: Yeah, the numbers you've laid out in your recent Downfall of the Yankees article were just hilarious because the Yankees offense has been really bad and all the players you can think of have been really bad, except Aaron Judge who's still been the best player in baseball.
3: <laughs> yeah, Judge has hit for like a two fifty WRC yeah. plus uh, in you know in the second half, and you know the Yankees' offense is still you know barely league average in that time. It's remarkable <laughs> how much
2: how much better he has been than the rest of the Yankees. Yeah. You often think of a team going in a slump and kind of nobody can get it working. It, it's not that he's he's still doing it just as good as ever, and his home run last night. I mean, I had to watch it a few times. It was 116 miles an hour off the bat, and it, it didn't look like he generated that much power. He's just, it's just so easy. It's so fun to watch.
3: Yeah, the six seven and those long levers, and, and it's remarkable. I mean, so Judge is my daughter's favorite player. She's about to turn turn six. In fact, she turns six on the day this podcast will, will will air. And I was in the press box. I actually got out my my uh, iPhone and was trying to get video of of mm-hmm. his plate appearance in the random hope that I might catch a home run. I've never been able to do that. I haven't even tried it very often, but I, by chance, I actually did catch it. And, you know, it's funny because I do, I do get the contact and, uh, but then I, I, you know, because of the overhang in the press box, especially where I was sitting, which was the back row, of uh, the three rows there, I lost sight of the ball, so my camera was oh. pretty pretty bad there. But it also reminded me I was at the game that July twenty eighth game, sitting in in uh, section four twenty two in the upper deck, where Judge hit that walk off, and that one looked more impressive from above, from that like that vantage point perched over the infield, yeah. than it did watching it on the broadcast. He's just he's got such a beautiful swing, and and when he just crushes the ball, it is a thing of magnificence
2: yeah i am very curious to see what happens to the yankees the rest of the year it's it's hard to kind of square the difference they still seem like a pretty good team but they never really felt as good as their record was at the best it's one of those you know you're never as good as you are when you're winning and you're never as bad as you are when you're losing i i think they're still the best team in the al east even in this recent stretch
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that they did not look like a powerhouse at the beginning of the season, and I think you know the the expectations got you know a little inflated because of that early success, which you know a lot of things just came together, and they they were winning all the close ones. Like there's a stat in the Tuesday piece of mine where of the ten blown saves they had, not just ninth inning blown saves, but the blown saves they had where they where a reliever gave up the lead through July eighth. They came back to win six of those games. Now that's I don't know impressive. the percentage. I don't know the percentage of games that teams do that. I really, you know, it's that. but it's not that high. Six. It ain't six out of ten. That's for sure. Teams yeah. don't. That's a ninety-six win pace. Teams don't win. You know, don't <laughs> don't win those games. But they had won just one out of the eight blown saves, two of which came in one game since then. And and it, so that was a big swing. And likewise, they'd gone from let's see eighteen. And something like eighteen and five in their one-run games to you know five and ten in their one-run games since then. So you know they were winning all the close ones before they started losing all their close ones. Now it, it balances out, and they look again like a team that's probably going to come in at around a hundred wins, maybe a few yeah. more than that if things gel the way they have the last few games, but. I don't think we should be expecting them to, to get back to that, you know, even like a 108 win clip or whatever. They're not the Dodgers.
2: Yeah. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Like they can be fine, but they're not they're not the Dodgers. The Dodgers They're not are the Dodgers and they were they're thing.
3: going to have their hands full with the Astros if that's, you know, who appear to be on a collision course with them. I mean, I, I you know, anything can happen in the playoffs, of course, but the AL Central does not have a team that's the caliber of those two and you know, right now I think the the big concern for the Yankees is probably re-securing home field advantage and the number one seed because the last two times they've played the Astros in the ALCS, they haven't had the home field advantage and they've lost those series. So they need to get that yeah. back.
2: That's looking to be tough because they just have, yeah. a, they have a tougher schedule the rest of the way. Not that they have a tough schedule. We, we project them to actually play a, a group of teams with an, a net losing like talent level a 492 strength of schedule the rest of the way. But the Astros right. get to play in the AL West. And
3: <laughs> that's yeah. a big advantage. Yeah, they don't have to face Frankie Montas uh, <laughs> as many times. That's yeah, it's the
2: AL West minus the uh, good players who have been traded out of the AL West at
3: the deadline. Yes, yes that's fair.
2: I, I think it's also an interesting time to look back at another kind of challenge trade the Yankees made this year. And I hadn't thought about this until recently. And actually, one of the commenters on your article mentioned this, and it really got me thinking. Was the keiner Falefa and Donaldson trade kind of a bigger negative for the Yankees than we thought in the first few months of the season? Because they haven't really gotten much production out of those guys, but the yeah. payroll they took on to get them, like could have gone elsewhere. And they really they kind of talked about it at the time that they were doing this instead of signing some marquee free agent as a way to improve their team, you know, by adding money. And it really did seem like they purposely added money in the Donaldson deal. And it didn't pay off nearly as much as it
3: hasn't uh, paid off. And Donaldson is not exactly Mr. Popularity after the uh, Tim Anderson incident. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been about a league average hitter, you know, and has been like all of his value is defensive. He's got like, you know, 11 defensive runs saved, six uh, stat cast runs above average, and a 1.3 war despite like a 98 WRC plus. But he's not even slugging 400. And
2: yeah. it's strange to think of Josh Donaldson, you, you know, know and, and
3: he did not get the backing of Aaron Judge or the clubhouse after he called Tim Anderson Jackie. And I think he was expecting to get that. And I don't know how much tension there is behind the scene or how, you know, whether he's like kind of, you know, stuck on an island now, isolating himself. I heard the things I heard about Josh Donaldson in the wake of that off the record from other people about his time in Minnesota do not lead me to believe that that was a trade that was solely about baseball acumen. It was uh it was a let's get this guy the f- out of here trade.
2: Yeah. I think um I think that Donaldson has always been kind of a, a trade-off for teams between like yeah. this guy is good at baseball and, you know, how much of that how much of everything else that comes with him will we tolerate in exchange for the fact that he is unquestionably good at baseball. And yeah. it seems like that part has maybe gone a little bit, that part's come a bit more in question this year. Sure. I mean, Connor Falefa is doing what he's there to do. And I mean, he's not a first division starter at shortstop, but no, the Yankees clearly, you know, they said, we don't need a first division starter at shortstop. That was in the cards, given that they yeah, have they, both Peraza and Volpe coming up.
3: They've really rationalized themselves into a corner on on that. And yeah, kind of for left I mean he's worked his butt off. He's a likable yeah, guy. I don't he really is. There's, he's just he's he's overmatched in something. you know, he worked hard and for a while his production there was keep was keeping up. And last night or Tuesday night, he had a couple of really nice started two really nice double plays that were critical in, in, in helping the Yankees win that game. But like you said, I, you know he's not a he's not a first division sh- starter. I think the Yankees would be well served, if, you know, if they had a way. If you know, if Aaron Boone were routine about maybe. Starting a shakier shortstop there. I mean, you could even start Torres there. He's not a shortstop either. But, <laughs> He's really not. A shortstop, you know, with, yeah. a, with you know when you've got like a more flyball oriented pitcher on the mound, you go with a Torres Lemayhu combination in the middle.
2: Yeah, just squeeze more offense into the lineup that way,
3: and then make a move later to to put in you know kind of Falefa, you know whatever because you've got because because you can move Lemayhu around, you can. You know, you you do have a little bit of versatility with with Torres. Um, you've even got some versatility with 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 IKF. You know, who's who's played third base as well.
2: Yeah, gold glove third baseman.
3: Yeah, exactly. So they have more positional flexibility than than I think they're taking advantage of there. And I think you could you could at least hide his bat, kind of Falefa's bat, a bit with better manipulation. And you know, because you've got in theory you've got a strong bench. I mean. You know, also, what is Marwin Gonzalez doing here anymore? Anyway, either I mean that guy's he could he could theoretically fill in at shortstop too, and he's even he's been even worse. And like we, I, I, you know, we've barely seen him lately.
1: Yeah, I think that the
2: way that the Yankees set up for next year with Kindraffleffa as more of a like a super utility type player who can sub in at a bunch of different spots. This is assuming that one of Peraza or Volpe is up, but I think that's. I don't understand how they can rationalize not having one of those two up next year at this point. And yeah. when that's the case, I like the idea of kind of fluff out a lot more because, like you said, he's defensively versatile and maybe he's an average shortstop. I think that's probably the best estimation looking at all the different metrics, but he's mm-hmm. an above average third baseman. I think he'd probably be an above average second baseman. He's a very useful player to have on your team. He's just a little miscast when it's like in the spot he's currently playing and that has nothing at all to do with him and everything to do with the way that the Yankees tried to build this.
3: Yeah, and and I think some of it some of it goes with their you know, their longstanding commitment to Glaber Torres, which I think has I don't know. I, I feel like that has kind of proven to be a bit of their downfall. Yeah, that was the most shocking number. He's not the thirty eight homer guy from two thousand nineteen. He is he has been at best a league average player since then, yeah. Three point one WAR, one hundred two WRC plus from two thousand twenty to twenty two in a thousand one hundred and seventeen plate appearances. I mean, that's that is a very that's league average or, or or slightly worse, you know, over over that time span, and and you know, he's relatively inexpensive he's making six million six million plus this year you know he's still a couple of years away from from free agency but they don't need to be this committed to him i mean they yeah. they can do better as you pointed out in your article he
2: has a 47 wrc plus since the all-star break
3: that's, yeah, not, good. that's not good and and you know he's been a hole in the lineup at times and 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 really you know there he's it's it's his presence as much as anything that has been you know a a, a factor in them Not chasing after the big money shortstops that have come on the market. I don't know. I like. We'll see what happens with with Aaron Judge's free agency. But I think they need to be players for either Correa or Trey Turner when they hit the market because it seems to me that you gotta you know you gotta get some start you know some you know a stronger left side better defense better offense from that from that position if you want to be an elite you know championship contending club and and, yeah you know they've they've been reluctant to do that because they believe so highly in 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 these prospects peraza and and volpe but you know prospects don't always pan out there's there's risk involved there and you know if they're shortstops they're guys who could who who are going to be more than playable at other positions especially you know if their bats live up to to some of the hopes so i don't know i it's it's a they've backed themselves into some corners here and and convinced themselves of some things that we that, that haven't, you know, haven't always panned out and now we're talking about some things that hey, we're, we are seeing their vision come to fruition. So, you know, maybe they'll be proven right, but the stakes are high and there's a lot of risk there.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it is uh that they have basically they've structured their team around first thinking Taurus would be their shortstop and then then thinking that the prospects would fill the shortstop hole. And it's just Fit awkwardly with the fact that all the good free agents now are shortstops. (laughs) It's just been like, like just shortstops all the way down for the past few years, which has left them kind of on the sidelines and trading for Josh Donaldson to use their money instead of doing something else because it just, it fits their puzzle pieces better. I wouldn't hate it if they went and got, I mean, I don't know if they can actually get Xander Bogarts, but got him. As kind of a shortstop, third base flex. Oh, yeah. That's,
3: a, that's another, yeah. That's another guy worth mentioning because he's probably going to opt out. And yeah. He's probably not a shortstop long term, but boy, I mean, yeah. you put him, you, you, you put him on the left side of that infield. It's, it's an upgrade. And
2: that would be actually, I think that would be their ideal. I mean, signing Judge is their ideal target in my opinion that I would be really sad if Aaron Judge weren't a Yankee anymore. I'm not a Yankees fan, but it's just right. He should be there. And yeah. I, I dream of having him out here on the Giants because I get to go see him a lot but i just i think he's going to be. Angry. Yeah,
3: to me the to me the giants seem like the one potential suitor that could really steal him away because they're going to have a ton of money to spend. They need a new centerpiece for their yes, team really badly. You know, they you know, they they could certainly rationalize that and he's a California guy and the pull might be there. But you know, he's also i mean, he is a guy who in in a lot of ways I you know, I, I, my observation of watching him up close hearing his banal answers in post-game press conferences. (laughs) This is a guy who's walking in the shoes of Derek Jeter. You know, he's very polished and non-controversial in the things he says. And he just loves being a Yankee and wants to be a Yankee forever. And, you know, that's, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. He's, you know, and he, and he's, it looks like he's going to be, you know, worth every, you know, or get every cent that he can, that he can out of them. And rightfully so. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's going to be very, very interesting off season, to say the least.
2: Yeah. I think that now it is set up to be an interesting rest of the season, interesting post season, interesting off season for the Yankees. And honestly, they're the Yankees. I expect nothing less. George Steinbrenner would be proud.
3: <laughs> I think it's a great note to end it on, actually.
2: Yeah. Thank you for coming to today's edition of Fangraphs Talks Yankees. It is always a pleasure to talk with you, Jay. And honestly, always a pleasure to talk about this fascinating team that is both great and terrible.
3: All right. Well, let's do it again sometime, Ben. Thanks a lot. Definitely. This has
0: been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Tim Haggerty for joining us. Make sure to check out his book when it comes out next spring. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you have moseyed on over to the Fangraphs.com shop to consider a membership, and after you have downloaded the new Fangraphs app, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter as well. If you're already receiving the newsletter, you may have already heard about the app. It is the best way to hear about all the cool things we have going on at Fangraphs, free to your inbox. We hope you have an excellent week, and we'll talk to you next time.